Hello and welcome to the Banker podcast series, Banking in Transition, where we explore how banking has changed through the COVID-19 pandemic and is adapting for the future. In this series, the Banker's editors are interviewing industry experts from around the world to help gather insights and advice on specific challenges, best practices and innovations that can help banks and their customers as we move towards a new normal in banking. I'm Kimberly Long, Age Editor of The Banker, and today I'm speaking with Paul Taylor, Global Head of Financial Institutions of Global Transaction Services at Bank of America. Thanks for joining me today, Paul. Kimberly, thank you so much for having me. Really glad to be here, and I hope that you're well, and of course, I hope that all your listeners are staying safe and well as well. Thanks very much, Paul. Uh, so, so to begin with, what is the main focus of FIs, FIs now as we move towards a new normal through the pandemic? Great question, Kimberly. So obviously, we've been talking to our clients. If anything, we've been talking to our clients a lot more since various economies went into lockdown at the beginning of last year. And I would say that really in the last two or three months, in all of the conversations we're having, we've started to see some consistent themes which are consistent for all financial institutions wherever they are in the world. And I would summarize those as being threefold. Number one, a major focus on the road to recovery in what is hopefully a post-pandemic market environment. I'll come back to that in a second. Number two, digital transformation. Clearly, the world banking was on a path to digital transformation before the crisis, before the pandemic. But if anything, the pandemic has only accelerated that. And then lastly, number three, uh, supporting new expectations beyond the bottom line. It feels like, if anything, the pandemic has brought heightened awareness, heightened sensitivity to some of the to some of the the factors beyond the bottom line. And of course, I'm talking there about everything from health. I don't think health has ever been such a major focus in every conversation. To the future of work, of course. To uh, what we might call ESG in the sense of uh, a lot more focus on, uh, of course, the environmental agenda, a lot more focus on societal change, societal uh, future. And then lastly, uh, a major focus on governance and in terms of how the world thinks about the way that business runs in the future, standards that we hold ourselves to and the way in which we measure contribution in the future. And I suppose looking more towards specifically towards Asia, kind of from my perspective, covering that region and also the challenges that the region has, has faced. I mean, obviously, the first region to be impacted by the pandemic and then now, as you know, things move on, we're seeing like Indonesia especially is being hit again by another wave. And also India earlier this year had that really big hit. So what themes are you seeing now coming out of Asia specifically? And do the needs of the FIs differ there now to what you're seeing in other regions? Yeah, you know, it's uh, as you say, the region which identified the coronavirus in question first I would argue was probably the region that responded best in 2020, was best prepared. Maybe that's because as a result of previous pandemics, I don't know, I'm not qualified to say, but it feels like 
the Asia-Pacific region had the best response in 2020 in terms of preparedness, in terms of being able to move through different types of lockdown or moving out of lockdown, and through getting back to some sort of business as usual. And as you say, this year, we've obviously seen India being impacted. You mentioned Indonesia. We've also seen Australia being impacted with new variants, specifically the Delta variant. And that obviously has brought some of those markets more in line with what we had seen in the Western Hemisphere over the last year or so. But one thing which still stands out from a financial institution perspective, which is that the Asia-Pacific region continues to be the region with total commitment to looking at new ways of doing things, to looking at new technology. And I would say that not only has that not really changed through the crisis or through the pandemic, I would say, if anything, again, that's accelerated. So what do I mean by that? So from a financial financial uh, services perspective, the it's the Asian markets that have really picked up the ball and run with, for example, real-time payments. Think of the number of markets as a percentage of total that have introduced real-time payment schemes over the last five to 10 years. Uh, I would argue that in, in the Asia-Pacific region, it's more than almost anywhere else. And also we see that the, the conversion rate towards those real-time payment systems, those real-time rails has been more significant in the region than anywhere else. Number two, FX. So FX and specifically what we might call transactional FX or payments, FX, FX payments. This has been a, a topic, a product, a service area, which has been growing globally for the last 11 years. In APAC, we've seen over the last two years that whilst a number of different markets have taken a different regulatory approach, have taken a different legal stance on the validity of FX payments, and how they should be treated and how they should be managed. We've seen consistently, holistically, that actually FX payments have been a major growth area for financial institutions in that the service is being used a lot more widely. We've seen it also expand as the basis for partnership between financial institutions, again, across all markets, albeit with different regulatory focus and different uh, regulatory constraint. We've still seen that that continues to be a major driver, especially uh, at a time when all financial institutions globally are seeking to ensure total transparency. So we've seen uh, that actually innovations around FX have increased transparency but have also increased the adoption of so-called FX payments. And the last thing, which again, I would say is a global trend, which I personally have seen uh, accelerating in the APAC region has been the proliferation of non-bank providers and non-bank solutions and technologies in the banking space. So what do I mean by that? If you think about the meteoric growth of the likes of uh, WeChat, for example. Uh, if you think about Alipay, of course, these are some of the more obvious examples, especially in North Asia. But if you also think about the growth, for example, in Australia, we've seen the terrific success of the buy now, pay later companies. 
and the buy now, pay later model uh, as a basis for the creation of new fintechs, new financial technology companies. All of these innovations are given oxygen by the fact that there is strong consumer demand for these products. The technology is there, the ability to invest and to launch the technology is there. And we are seeing in financial institutions, which of course comprises not just banks, but a variety of different types of bank and non-bank financial institutions, we are seeing huge pent-up demand for these services in APAC and a continued investment to look at what the next innovations will be, what the next financial technologies will be. So I would say APAC has had a really great reaction to the pandemic in 2020, is having a more mixed reaction in 2021 as new variants come about, but without any doubt continues to be one of the leading, if not the leading region globally for innovation and for new product development in the financial institution space. And even with the, the backdrop of the pandemic, you know, there's so much concern now around environmental issues and the impact that they will have you know, across the world, even as we move on from the pandemic. So what um, considerations now um, around sustainable finance are impacting the decision-making process of FIs? And are you seeing this varying across different regions or is it very much a global attitude now towards wanting to adopt a more sustainable method of working? I don't know if the pandemic was the driver, but pretty much every financial institution I speak to or every colleague, excuse me, that I speak to at Bank of America would say that it feels that at some point over the last five, maybe 10 years, ESG as a heading moved from being something which perhaps had a greater part in terms of marketing and in terms of branding to being something which is absolutely core to financial institutions and the way in which they operate in the market and the way in which they are seen in the market. Maybe that's not just true for financial institutions, but working in one and, and working with different financial institutions every day, I will say that ESG is now core. And I see that through a number, really a number of different lenses. I see that through the lens of the market. I see it through the lens of Bank of America. And then, of course, I see it through our transaction services business as well. So maybe just to break those down uh, very quickly for you here, Kimberly. From a market perspective, I would say that the most obvious illustration of the combined prioritization of ESG has been the uh, the focus on net zero. Of course, we have the COP26 conference later this year, the United Nations Climate Conference, which is taking place in my hometown in Glasgow uh, later this year. And in anticipation of that event, a number of the banks are working together on what has now been called the Glasgow Financial Alliance for Net Zero. A number of financial institutions have signed up to this. Of course, Bank of America uh, signed up as well. And we have committed as part of that, that we will increase our environmental business, business initiative to $1 trillion by 2030 to finance and accelerate the transition to a stable economy. And that's part of an existing $1.5 uh, $1 trillion 
dollar commitment to sustainable finance. Now, of course, Bank of America is not the only organization. And what's striking about, about the GFANS, uh, the, the acronym for this, this alliance, is that so many organizations, so many different financial institutions from across all of the regions have signed up and have made proportionately similar commitments within their business to sustainable finance. The second piece I would say is around ESG specifically at Bank of America. We've, we're very proud of the fact that we are now the leading underwriter of green bonds, and we have been globally since 2007. Uh, we've raised over $130 billion for renewable energy since 2015. And we have put in place a number of different structures. We've put in place a number of different go-to-market offerings, all of which center on sustainable finance. We have we, finance, excuse me. We have our own uh, sustainable finance global head who reports directly into the management team of the bank. We have a research function which is dedicated to looking at uh, sustainable finance from an equity research perspective, and we have a number of products which leads me of course, to my own uh, line of business, which is global transaction services in, in GTS, as we like to call it. We haven't just been watching this from the sidelines. We have introduced a number of different thoughts and considerations around, uh, in, around sustainable finance, uh, whether that be uh, sustainable deposits uh, and, and helping our clients to make sure that they are investing their excess liquidity in green or ESG friendly alternatives. Number two, uh, sustainable supply chain finance. Uh, so making sure that our clients have the ability to invest in green facilities, that they have the option uh, to take up sustainable uh, supply chain finance as an alternative. Uh, but of course, Digital. Uh, I said before that one of the most striking phenomena of the last couple of years has been the huge acceleration that we've seen away from paper, away from manual process, towards electronic, towards digital. And that's end to end, right? If you think about it, in our GTS business alone, digital signatures, e-signatures, have increased year over year by over 309%. A staggering and in our treasury uh, solution for global corporate treasurers, which we call CashPro, we've seen the number of logins increase dramatically. We've seen the value of payments flowing through not just the desktop system, but the mobile app and the API increase by triple digit percentages year over year. And that has a very real bearing. It has a very real contribution to a move towards ESG, to a world where we are processing less paper, where we are physically, manually moving less physical objects, and where we are able to help our clients uh, to achieve their own ESG goals in terms of being able to provide them with solutions which are, let's say, uh, more environmentally friendly, more sustainable. So we are seeing uh, sustainable finance as a theme, we're seeing it as a trend, we're seeing it as a reality in every single aspect of how we look at the work that we do with our clients.
That's great, Paul. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. And you can keep up to date by subscribing to our weekly podcasts on iTunes, Spotify and Acast and follow our discussions at thebanker.com slash podcasts. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryant, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.